Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm pleased to welcome a Shulman Journalism Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, investigative journalist Daniel Greenfield. How are you doing, Daniel? Good. Thank you for having me on. Well, investigative journalism used to be a popular specialty in the media, but in recent years, true investigative journalism uh, has been mostly run out of the corporate media. Uh, I'm talking about the networks and the CNNs. Even Fox doesn't really do that anymore. How did you pursue that particular career path, Daniel? Well, what has happened in the media is that there's very much an interest in people who have uh, very specific narratives, but there's very much little interest in doing actual work. Uh, you know, it's like uh, the old joke about the guys passing a barn and there are all these arrows and they're exactly in the target. And the old man tells him, well, you know, I shoot the arrow, then I draw the target around it. That's much of what the media does now. <laughs> uh, I got into this uh, actually after September 11th. I was in New Yorker. I was around ground zero. And I felt the need to just talk about this, to explain this initially, not in a professional fashion, just as a blogger. And, you know, there continue to be important stories that uh, feel like they're worth looking into, um, people's accounts that need to be told, and the larger sense of what is going on that needs to be discussed and revealed. That's excellent. And I know that uh, your field of investigative journalism, some of your compatriots have come under fire recently. I'm thinking of uh, the folks who do the undercover investigating. Um, and so I salute you for your efforts, and I'm cheering you on. Uh, you're working you. for a powerhouse organization in the fight for liberty, the David Horowitz Freedom Center. David has been my guest a few times on Core Principles, and most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, to talk about his new book, Final Battle. Listeners, buy that book, Final Battle, by David Horowitz, and you can listen to his discussion of that on this podcast from the 24 January episode. Well, Daniel, this week for Front Page Magazine, you wrote about the Memphis police who have been charged with murdering Tyree Nichols. And the title of your article is Memphis Cops May Have Been Affirmative Action Hires. So as David Horwitz has noted before, affirmative action is a government-sanctioned violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlaws race-based considerations in hiring. But how does affirmative action relate to the apparently, allegedly, murderous police in Memphis? So I should emphasize this is for now unconfirmed. We've been hearing that from sources in law enforcement. Now what's been going on in Memphis and a lot of cities is around 2020, the year of Black Lives Matter, um, the stat police, a lot of police officers, career people decided they did not want to be doing this anymore. Um, the uh, political authorities did not have their backs and were willing to sell them out. There was an upsurge in violence. Um, beyond the race riots, a lot of criminals were released um, to protect them from COVID. Uh, there were there was a push to in generally decriminalize a lot of crimes. And there was the climate became ugly because the criminals had the sense that uh, the power was on their side. And, you know, a lot of career people, veterans decided we do not want to do this anymore. We're already living in a suburb. Uh, we're going to 
get jobs in the suburb or in some other suburb. We're going to have safe jobs, nice place to raise our families, even larger salaries, because the bottom line is you cannot really pay anybody to be a police officer. You cannot pay anybody uh, to be in the military. You cannot pay a 20-year-old kid uh, to go out there and get his legs blown off. People do that because there is a sense that it's worth doing. And a lot of career people in the law enforcement decided this is not worth doing anymore. In their place uh, uh, came uh, people who were, did not have that same level of experience, people who were in some cases drawn by larger signing bonuses, uh, who did not have the proper training. Now, also in a lot of departments, because of the so-called racial reckoning, there was a priority on getting in black officers, whether or not they had the proper training or the background, and just putting them out there because supposedly it immunized these departments from accusations of racism. Now, one of the things that was also going on is uh, they had these quota targets, which meant if a city, let's say, like Memphis is, I think, about 64% or so black, you needed a 64% black police force. Uh, the Memphis PD is about, I think, about 58% black, um, which meant, meant that they to hit those numbers, you had to get in police officers based on race. And when you do affirmative action, as David Hartz, of course, has said, it's a violation of the Civil Rights Act. It's also the actual last vestige of systemic racism in this country. But you're also not getting the people you actually need. In many cases, affirmative action is supposed to benefit black people. Well, it benefits the people you're hiring, maybe. It does not benefit the people they are serving. And when it comes to police officers in the majority black city, those people are also, for the most part, black people. So we what we're seeing play out here is a situation where they're focusing on getting black police officers because that's supposed to fix all the problems. It does not fix the problem, and instead it leads to somebody's death. That's a very rich and detailed answer. There's a few things to dive into. Uh, putting aside, as we've already discussed, the violation of the Civil Rights Act that this represents, um, it seems obvious to me, as just a layperson, uh, the better criteria for hiring police officers has to be competency and professionalism and the right kind of disposition, which can certainly be found among any population with any racial demography if one chooses to make that the actual criteria. And seems, of course, that uh, some of the competent, professional African-Americans of Memphis simply don't choose to apply for the police department because of liberal leftist policies like defund the police and all the denigration of the police that the liberals and the leftists are always promoting. Am I simplifying that, Daniel, or is that on target? I'm sure it's a, it's definitely an element of it. And being a police officer these days is not a good job. It's never a very good job, but it's probably at the worst that it's been if you just pull, look at surveys of police officers, law enforcement, and if you talk to uh, law enforcement uh, personnel. Uh, this is a bad time to be doing this job uh, between the upsurge of violence, between the public perception. You know, you're a police officer, you're in the military, you want to feel like you're serving the people, you're serving your community, and you often do not feel that way. And for black officers, it's even worse because they're getting it from all sides. Um, on the one hand, uh, they're not getting very much support from their own community. Uh, they're being assailed by the media, by political activists. Um, and they're doing a thankless job anyway. So uh, if you're a white person and you go into law enforcement, there's already a high barrier. If you're a black person, there's an even higher barrier. So, um, and you know, it's not like it's a profession that pays very well. If you're a black person and you're aspirational, you're probably not going into law enforcement. Um, if you're a white person and you're aspirational, well, a lot of these people are not going into law enforcement either. You have to be willing to take certain risks. Um, you have to ha um, accept the idea that your family might not see you 
um, the next day. So it's a scary situation. And the the more barriers we, we erect, uh, the more difficult we make it for people to serve, the worse the quality of the people that are going to serve. Yes, and we see the consequences on such a horrific video where it, it appears that that instance in Memphis was basically a group of gang members with badges acting up. That's my uh, uninformed, just watching this in horror uh, viewpoint of that, but we'll find out at trial just how much that's accurate. But we do, as citizens, need to put a level of trust to our law enforcement community. We entrust them to be armed and to use force against us if we violate the law, but we have to know that they are trustworthy, that they're not going to abuse that. And how do we get back to that right balance? It can't be because we're going to have quotas for this or that, but how do we get more of the competent professionals who are trustworthy to be the ones in whom we put that trust? In every institution, it comes down to the culture, you know, whether it's journalism, whether it's the military, it's law enforcement, um, it's any particular line of business for that matter. Uh, what separates the police from just a bunch of guys with guns? Well, uh, ethics, duty, uh, and, you know, what is generally institutionalized within the culture. And when you actually uh, push out the people who make up the culture, the veterans, uh, the experienced people, and you bring in other people who are uh, don't have that culture, they don't have that background, and you're not really pairing them with um, the older career professionals because A, those people are not there, or B, they're white, which means that you're not supposed to listen to them anyway, uh, the results are going to get very ugly. What we saw in the Nichols case, or apparently what we saw, because, you know, I do caution people against just focusing on viral videos. We've had four or five years where everybody just jumps on a viral video, but it, uh, professionals, um, police uh, training experts have looked at this, and they've said that uh, they're not using any kind of training there because, you know, in previous cases, including the George Floyd overdose case, um, their focus has been on uh, they're using um, approved methods. They're using conventional police training methods. Um, they're using uh, things that are in the guidelines, but they're doing it too much. They're not paying enough attention to the suspect's health and well-being and things like that. Um, here, it's completely off the reservation. The stuff they're doing has nothing to do with what anybody is actually trained to do. Uh, you're kicking somebody in the head. That's not any kind of training. That's um, street gang violence. And again, it's not hugely surprising because what we're seeing out there, uh, you may not see this on TV so much, but when you talk to law enforcement, you're seeing one, um, criminals are very quickly escalating confrontations with police. Um, the new police officers who are coming in are people like these guys who have a certain amount of physical ability, aggressiveness, but they don't have any kind of a culture of law enforcement. They don't know where to draw the line. So they've also learned to, to preemptively escalate confrontations, which means anybody defies them, uh, they quickly um, put them down, they quickly intimidate them. And this is something that's an issue in a lot of police brutality cases where there is a preemptive escalation. Um, but it gets much worse when the police officers themselves do have a reasonable sense that everybody is out to get them. And they feel like they're in Vietnam, like they're in Afghanistan, like they have to uh, preemptively take action. And it gets very ugly out there. And this is the situation. You can just you know, look at viral videos of all sorts of physical um, encounters between police officers and people in major cities. And this is happening a whole lot. Uh, this is the first time it ended in death, but it's not hugely surprising that this is going on. And a lot of the black officers who have come in 
uh, do not have the culture, do not have the training, and they don't really have the white guilt that a lot of the white officers do. Uh, they don't feel that there's anything wrong in doing this because they're not racist. And this goes back to what you mentioned earlier. Um, when we talk about meritocracy and when we talk about uh, the best qualified people for the job, those are the people who actually understand the rules and they have standards. When we make everything about identity politics, then it becomes a binary. Are you a racist or you're not a racist? If you're potentially a racist, then you have to be very, very careful um, around black suspects. If you're black, you're not a racist. You can do anything you want. This is also what we're seeing in Memphis. Although I was curious to read that some of the main media have suggested that this is systemic racism anyway, just because everything is. I didn't quite decode how they figured that the accused black officers were racist against Mr. Nichols, but whatever. Everything is racist, including apparently in Norway, they're spending money to study whether paint is racist. So there we are. But I would take issue with one thing. This is not the only time we've seen uh, a violation of the trust of the law enforcement officers. I'm thinking of what I consider the murder of Ashley Babbitt on January 6, 2021 by a Capitol Police officer. Uh, I studied that enough to see that there was no escalation of uh, the interaction before the use of lethal force against Ashley Babbitt. So uh, there was, whether it was a breakdown in the training of that officer or just the situation, uh, a tragedy that seemed avoidable if they had just said, hey, knock it off, or we're going to push you back, or we're going to detain you, or whatever else, rather than just open fire and shoot her dead. So these things do happen, but it is uh, certainly a tragedy every time. Well, what sort of solutions do you see going forward, Daniel? Well, we did have a professional police forces and low crime rates if you go back to 2017, 2018, uh, before much of society was just broken by uh, the wave of racial violence, the wokeness, the insistence on reinventing everything, every institution in line with systemic racism. Um, the idea that, you know, as you mentioned, that uh, police forces themselves are systemically racist. There are Black Lives Matter activists who will claim that police forces were def descended from slave patrols, um, that they're inherently illegitimate. Uh, we can get back to 2017, 2018. We had lower crime rates. We also had much lower death rates for Black males. Um, after 2020, the year, the death rate for black men has shot up catastrophically. We're talking thousands of more deaths in one year, which the media has absolutely not reported, and is down to crime, is down to um, the way that we've licensed violence. We need professional police forces, which means the police officers need to um, have the sense of both their duties and responsibilities, but also the sense that they are going to be supported if they are doing a dangerous job. And if they're doing this correctly, uh, this is the same thing we ask and offer to our uh, military personnel. It's the same thing we should be offering to law enforcement. And they should know that they are going to get the support and they're going to get these expectations regardless of race. When you have police officers who have the sense that um, there's one set of rules for white officers or Asian officers and other officers, another set of rules for black officers, it's going to be an absolute disaster. And it is not helping the communities that they serve. And this is something we need in general in American life. We need competence. We need professionalism. And, you know, those are key ingredients because what you described, for example, is a situation where um, if how you react as a professional when you're dealing with an unexpected situation, an encounter that spins out of control, um, is going to very much depend on your training and is going to depend on your character. And those are key ingredients. You know, you're an airline uh, pilot. You're flying a plane. Something goes wrong. 
how you react is going to come down to training and character. Uh, it's the same thing in every situation for any of us, for that matter. Uh, you're facing some kind of crisis. What are you, what's your training? What's your character? And those are the things that we have neglected. We want professionals who are going to be trusted to risk their lives, to risk our lives. Uh, we need to actually focus on training and character. And we can look at this away from urban areas. Uh, look what happened in Uvald uh, when absolutely nobody wanted to make a decision and the leadership was spinning their wheels. This is what we've created in some cases uh, because we don't have the proper uh, character and we don't have the proper level of professionalism. If we get back to those two touchstones, uh, we're good. That would be a very good solution. Uh, it sounds easy because philosophically and in principle, it is obvious. However, it is also very, very difficult um, because current society is just pushing away from the whole idea of personal responsibility, accountability, and professionalism is sort of passe. Uh, but I think about when you're talking about these important uh, aspects of this, I was career military myself in Air Force. Um, I know that for folks who were at the tip of the spear, particularly like Army, uh, Rangers, Navy, SEALs, uh, special operators in all the branches, their training was such that no matter what they were going to do on deployment, the training was established so that their worst days should be in training. So that when the worst happens on the deployment, they're not overcome with shock. They're ready to act and react uh, in a way that will bring about a beneficial result. Uh, it's, it's terrible that that sort of thing has to happen, but war is hell, and that is unfortunately the way it will be. Well, uh, as we conclude, I wanted to ask you about the chief of police in Memphis. Uh, chief Davis is the first female chief of police from Memphis, uh, came on the job in 2021. Um, you mentioned there's research, I think, done by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, among others, uh, maybe even the UK Daily Mail, uh, about her background and her hiring. Is there anything relevant to the topic we're discussing about Chief Davis's hiring? Well, there's, it's kind of following the same trend. So also around the year of Black Lives Matter, police forces focused on getting in black leadership. Even if they didn't have enough black officers, they would have the black police chief, the black police captain out in front, and they focused on their you know preferred target demographic. You now have a lot of black women who are the heads of police forces. Where do all these people come from? Do they have the proper background? Do they have the proper training? Do they actually have the years of experience that, of actually running um, a department on that level? And you know uh, the desperation to hire some of these people to uh, put the right face in front of the camera. And Memphis uh, led them seemingly to hire somebody who does have um, a problematic history, somebody who had scandals around her. Uh, who appeared to have behaved unprofessionally, but uh, Memphis really wanted that black female police chief out there, and so they got her. You know, I mean, Memphis now you have the you have a majority black police force. You have a black female uh, police chief. You have a black female head of the police union. Seemingly, you have all your ducks in a row as far as identity politics go. Yet the system failed catastrophically. So uh, there's a basic lesson here which nobody is learning which is that identity politics is no substitute for um, actually getting results. That is true. And listeners, I want you to hear this again. It has nothing at all to do 
with the intrinsic unchangeable factors of our being. These are the things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, ignore those, count on character, look at character, that's what matters. So within any demographic, uh, with any group, race, gender, otherwise, you can find competent, professional uh, people, including competent, professional leaders. But I think the point that Daniel is making that I'm echoing is, if you make the quotas the metric of your success, you're not focusing on the things that will bring you success. You can find them in any demographic, uh, the, the best of all, but you've got to make the metrics be actually the things that lead to success on the job, the professionalism, the character, the uh, willingness to use force only as necessary and proper. So uh, not to put words in your mouth, Daniel, but that's uh, what I'm hearing. And is that accurate per your perspective? Yeah, you need the right people for the job. Uh, the Memphis PD was focused on getting the people it needed for particular demographics. Rather than getting the right people, they lowered standards. Um, there are allegations that the officers who are at charge here actually came in through a kind of side door through the city. Rather than through Memphis PD, the bottom line is they were focused on the wrong things. They were focused on none of the best people for the job. They're focused on uh, getting, hitting a quota. When you focus on hitting a quota in any profession, uh, whatever the quota you're in, that if you decide you only want you want 50% Chinese or 50% white people, you're still going to get the wrong results. Right. Well, listeners, we've been talking with Daniel Greenfield. Uh, the article that we've been referencing is in Front Page Magazine online, uh, and he's cites uh, the New York Post, he cites NBC News, he cites the Daily Mail and others. Uh, it's very well sourced, very well thought out. And uh, so I encourage you to dig deeper into the topic before drawing conclusions. It's always important to be informed on these things. So I'm very thankful, Daniel Greenfield, that you have brought these facts to the fore and have a blessed day. Thank you so much. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.